Hey, what's up, my people? Hope you're all safe and well. I need to begin today's show by congratulating Albert Ruznak for the people have voted and they've decided that his fantasy five-a-side team of Ter Stegen, Roberto Carlos, Ronaldinho, Lionel Messi and Zinedine Zidane is the best out of all the guests who've created one so far. Now, if you think you can do better, be sure to reach out to us on social media. The handle is kickback underscore Nadam and that's on Instagram and Twitter. We're very good at responding to people. We've got new people on board. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, we'll have a listeners tournament. Who knows? And also a big shout out to Vero Baqueta as she was the losing finalist. So now new listeners, diehards and everybody in between. Today's guest is a former MLS player. And if you think you recognize his voice from somewhere, that's probably because he's also an analyst for RSL, ESPN and Fox Sports. Ladies and gentlemen, please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Mr. Brian Dunseth. So, firstly, thanks for coming on, Yom. Yeah, of course. Of course, sorry. Obviously, you know, you're usually the analyst, but I'm going to analyze you today. I hope you're ready for that. (laughs) I figured shit was coming. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. Right. If if you see me looking down, I apologize just because I'm just getting some notes from my book, okay? Oh, all good, dude. All good. So honestly, before I did my research, all I knew about you and your career was that you had that iconic flag plant moment for uh, RSL. But that's cool and everything, but I want to know everything else about you. Um, Because essentially, Wikipedia doesn't really provide context and all I see are numbers and not much explanation. So will you be up for telling us about that today? I'll tell you whatever you want, my man. I'm open for it. I'm looking forward to this. So let's begin, yeah? So, for people who haven't seen you play, I want to talk about your early career. And what type of player were you? Like, what was your style? Oh, my style. So, I was, growing up in Southern California, a guy that learned really quickly that growing up with, like, kind of an Hispanic contingent, that you let the ball do the work. Okay. So, my order of business was try to physically battle and compete. Um, Mm -hmm. When, you know, I had some ups, I could get up, I win my aerial headers, um, but for me, mainly it was when I get the ball, you know, f- find the pass, break the lines. But also one of the things I took a lot of pride in was I could play with both feet, left foot, right foot. And oh, humble gone, there you go. Gone are the days <laughs> of the diagonal, right? Like yeah. I, just wanted to, I wanted to hit that diagonal. That's that's what I always want. I wanted to spring attacks. I wanted to be able to find a winger. Um, okay. So, yeah, that I, I would say good in the air, um, always up for a battle uh, and, and pretty proficient with my feet. Okay, so how did that translate into the early MLS? Uh, so early days, I so I was allocated part of that Project 40 group to New England. So I walk in the door and it's Alexi Lawless. And so, you know, you, you at the time, 1997, Alexi and the hair and the goatee, you know, the Adidas commercials, the Powerade commercials. He was a, he was a global superstar at that point um, in terms of kind of just iconic soccer player that people would recognize and just come back from Italy. Um Back then, it was it was like you were an 18 man roster, so you either played or you know there was no chance of you ever playing. Um, so what I learned very quickly is that that physicality, you had to bring it every single day. I mean, you know, as a young player, if you yeah. if you get if the first time you get tackled and you complain or you whine or you show weakness, like you're done. So you had yeah. to have banter off the field. You you had to be able to physically kind of compete, and that was the biggest jump was, you know, being being 19, 20 years old and, and coming up against grown-ass men. But yeah, that's that's definitely a big step in someone's career. And you mentioned, was it Pro 40? 
Project 40. Project 40. So what exactly what exactly is that? Because I, I didn't know what it was until just now. So could you could you share that with the audience who don't, maybe don't know? Before there was like homegrowns, um, there was something called Generation. Well, there's still Generation Adidas, but it was Project okay. 40. And Project 40 was launched by MLS and Nike in 1997 to basically fast track college players to kind of bypass college, to get them into pros, create create younger to create environments for younger players to actually go pro. Um, but they did a, they had an interesting component. The component was an education component. So okay. me at Cal State Fullerton, I left, signed my pro contract, and there was always money available for me to go back to school. So I could sign up for classes, but this was kind of before online, you know, before Western Governors Union or whatever it's called, university. They, we didn't really have online capabilities. It was more like you had to sign up at a local university and then you would kind of get reimbursed for all of your classes. But that was like, hey, parents, I know your kid's at a great college. My college wasn't great. Uh, <laughs> hey, here's a pro contract. And, you know, we like we think your your kid's good enough to play pro at a younger age. So you were highly fancied and highly thought of then when you were first coming through? It was I, I was uh, it was my sophomore year of college. I got called in to like my first uh, under 20 national team camp. Okay. And because of my play in college. And so from the under 20s, going to the World Cup, um, that's when I kind of got, I was seen in the build up to the World Cup. That got me to MLS. Uh, and then kind of the 20s to the Olympic team to kind of being a part of the national team. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you a few questions now. There's, I was trying to get them in chronological order, but it's actually quite tricky. So I'll just fire them away and let's, let's see how you can answer them. Yeah. yeah. So one thing I saw on your Wikipedia page was that you ended up being, was it the first player to play for seven teams in the MLS? Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. And like that without context doesn't necessarily mean that much. So I want to, I would like you to explain like how, was that more normal back then for players to move around or was this, was that just something that happened to you? Yeah, it, well, it happened to a lot of us, um, but yes. So I, I guess the context is for me, I'm personally off the field, all right? We always judge everyone by the white lines. I, I, I looked at it as, like, my analogy was, like, I'm a train on a track, and I'm going through different cities, and I'm hitting different stops, and people are getting on, people are getting off. That was, like, I wanted culture. I wanted lifestyle. I wanted friendships. I wanted football. I wanted, I wanted to do it all. Um, I was always looking for opportunity. I, I never... I never liked staying stagnant. I think throughout the course of my life from when I was 16, when I left my house, my parents' house, I think I've probably moved 19 to 20 times. Um, okay. So I was always one for different life experiences. Back then, it was completely different than it is now. I mean, now we have kind of these robust rosters and you have foreign players and you have American, North American players and you have academy players and you have USL sides. It, it was different. So if you were an 18-man roster player back then, if you were on a where the way I looked at it, I was I was I was solid enough as a player that other teams wanted me to be a part of what they were doing, but I was never mm. fortunate enough to play for have the longevity under a manager that we had a lot of success where I knew like this is my home, he believes in me, I believe in the product, and this is I'm good. Um, so yeah. outside outside of the New England Revolution, I think that was those three and a half, four years was the longest tenure that I had with the club. Okay. And you've mentioned a few changes with the MLS and stuff. So how different was it compared from when you first entered the league compared to when you left the league eventually? Uh, I mean, night and day, Not, nothing to what it was like now, but the context of 
you know, for people, we, we talk about these expansion fees, right? And I think this this new team in Charlotte was three hundred and twenty five million was the expansion fee. Incredible, really, isn't it? Reese, Real Salt Lake was five million in two thousand five. Right. Okay. I mean, you put that in context of the growth. So, what it was when I started in ninety seven to what it was in two thousand five, like we were kind of on this uptick, and it was right when David Beckham was coming, and that was kind okay. of a watershed moment. Like MLS was on this slow growth pattern, but the moment David showed up, all of a sudden, you became a global, you became a globally recognized league, even though the quality of play wasn't there, but the global mm -hmm. recognized league was because David opened the door. So 2005, um, imagine University of Utah Football Stadium, you know Rice Eccles Stadium. Yeah, sure do. Imagine training on that every single day. And no, thank you. you. Train on it until after football practice, because that's the only time you could get field time. And we, we didn't have grass fields so yeah. every day on turf. So from then, there was a ton of growth. But now to what you guys are, uh, you know, the facilities you have, I, I am. Yeah, they're, they're very good. Yeah. yeah. And relatively speaking, it feels like it's a short career. So, again, I'd like some context here. Why did you end up retiring when you did? So I was outside of a hernia surgery. I was healthy. I mean, I. My stats, my numbers, I feel like I was always starting somewhere around 75% of the games. That would have included suspensions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. I, I might have crossed the line once or twice a season. But so when I went to Sweden, I had a contract uh, dispute with FC or Dallas Burn at the time. They held my rights. They would not. Tra so I got traded at the end of 2002 from Columbus to Dallas. There was. Uh, the day of the day of reckoning, we called it the trade deadline. A guy named Jeff Cunningham uh -huh. popped his hamstring. He was supposed to be traded. Jeff and I made the same amount of money. They had a player coming in, so they had to dump that amount of money. Because Jeff popped his hamstring, all of a sudden I got traded, and I just bought a house like six months earlier. I got traded to Dallas. Had a contract option at the end of the season. Coach gets fired. General manager quits. They don't offer me a new contract. They don't extend my contract and they won't trade me to the LA Galaxy. So basically this is kind of the, the horror stories of MLS back in the early 2000s is a club could essentially have your rights, but they could sit on you. They don't have to move you. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I couldn't sign. I wasn't a free agent, even though they didn't want me. So I ended up going to Dallas. That's a disaster. That's why I went to Sweden. And, you know, the, the, the time I was in Sweden, I picked up, like a little bit of a, a, a knock on my knee, I get that scoped. And literally within a window of a year, I have my knee scoped. First day back at training, I break my fifth metatarsal. They put a screw in it. Halfway through the season, I break the screw in the metatarsal again, rip the shoulder, and I find out that I've broken my L4 and L5 from that consistent training on the turf. So within a 12-month window, I went from completely healthy to my back's broken and my body couldn't handle the fatigue of training every single day. Yeah. That's so that's ultimately why I had to retire because of those injuries. Yeah. No. You, you, so I didn't, I wasn't planning on asking this question, but based on what you've said, I, in the past few weeks, obviously it's very different for you who played a long time ago in this league. But one of the big differences I feel between the MLS and other countries and stuff is that the players are a, basically held accountable by their own clubs and if there's ever any discussion or dispute it's a rate it's fixed between the club and the players 
And as a consequence, the players feel like they have a bit more power because contracts are different and so on and so forth. So do you think, so in this moment now, for example, with the, um, due to the pandemic, we, we are trying to negotiate with the league to see what's going to happen next and so on and, and whatever. But it always feels to me, having played abroad, that the players here don't have enough power. Mm to the point whereby a lot of decisions which are being made, it's almost like you're always picking, choosing the lesser of two evils, as opposed to having something to create yourself. You know what I mean? Like, do you think the league will ever allow players to have as much power as say maybe they do outside of this place? You know, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating conversation because I think there's a give and take, right? Because yeah. to your point, the, the player power is based on the longevity of the contract and yeah. the financial numbers, the, the extreme financial numbers when we're thinking about the Prem or the championship, right? Yeah. In Major League Soccer, there's a, there's a security in the way the players are paid because it's coming from centralized location, New York. Yeah. And so we always kind of joke around, you can sign a million-dollar contract with a club around the world, but will you get paid? that million dollars, right? Yeah. The financial insecurities uh -huh. of clubs themselves, whereas the solid foundation of MLS is kind of this beneficial marker for players to look at and say, well, regardless, irregardless of what's happening, every two weeks I'm getting my paycheck yeah. throughout the course of my contract. So there's a security in there. You're absolutely correct in the opinion that the players do not have power, and they've never had power. And even in, and I'm probably stepping out of line, but this is my perspective as now more of like a journalist and an outsider looking in. Even with the collective bargaining agreement, the the collective bargaining agreement and the players' union, however many numbers are in the power of the, the players' union, would they be stronger with guys like Wayne Rooney and Zlatan Ibrahimovic? Absolutely, they would. But here comes kind of this this insane conversation of is the players' union built on the security of North American players versus the security of the league as a whole. Yeah. And for all of the incoming foreign players, um, what, what, I don't know, what loyalty do they have to a players union that maybe doesn't always take into account their personal situation um, yeah. so, or their livelihood? Yeah. But yeah, I, I think the power has always been in the owners. The power has always been in the MLS headquarters. And right, wrong, or indifferent, I can't see much changing um, in the short term because I know it's constantly going to be a negotiation. Uh, and ultimately, I think the way that you have the ownership set up, a lot of it's kind of NFL-centric, right? The Crafts, the Hunts, um, you know, those that own kind of big conglomerate sports franchises outside of Mr. Arthur Blank. I, th I think they like the idea of a capped formula to keep operating expenses down. And when you have those operating expenses controlled, I think that takes a lot of power away from the players. Yeah, for sure. It does feel like with their bargaining agreements, things are getting slightly better and slightly better and slightly better. But it's the league and the owners or whatever giving little bits of control back to the players. But the bits are so little it feels like it's, at times it feels like it's big progress and it is based on, say, how it was when you first played in the league. But 
as I say, does the league want to compare itself to other leagues? Does it want to? Because if you want to compete with other leagues, you need people to come over and feel the same as you would do in other leagues. And in this sort of crisis now, based on say play salaries and so on, like in terms of certain discussions, I've not really added my opinion too much just because I have a different situation, and I appreciate how for other people, say if you're on if you're one of the third of the league that's on less than a hundred thousand in the year. When it comes down to it, if somebody says we're going to do this or you're not going to get paid, they're always going to lean towards getting paid, which is perfectly fine and acceptable. But the thing which they which they would agree on to be paid to do is something which maybe would never be offered to them if they had more power. Yeah, but as a consequence, you know what yeah. I mean? So I'm just like, you, you, someone says jump and you say you don't want to jump and say, well, we'll stop paying you. I said, all right, how high? You know, that's that feels like the process. And, you know, maybe I'll I'll learn more about it and it's different, but that's kind of how it feels right now. Yeah, oh, sorry, I went off on a tangent. No, 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 because I, I listen, I agree with you. I, I think there's also, there's a conversation to be had about, you know, from the players' union, and I've had this conversation with those involved with the player union, is that I, I, I would love to see them, whether it's long-term healthcare, whether... It's sometimes of, of subsidized payment tied into the future television revenue that if you play five years in the ma- in major league soccer, uh, if you play 10 years or seven years, if you played over 10, that there's some type of staggered approach where there's a longevity of protection for former players because, you know, listen, while you, you are still in, in, in the midst of your career and identifying yourself as a footballer, um, you start to think about life after football. And for me, the moment that the game was gone. And I still remember that last day where they said, here's your last paycheck. And in my brain, I was like, I'm no longer a professional. Who yeah. the F am I? Like, I'm just a person. So yeah. I'm a husband. I'm a, you know, I'm a father. I'm a friend. I'm a, I'm a son. But outside of that, like, I've got to reinvent myself. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. So how can we financially give a footing to athletes afterwards, knowing that there's very few of us that are going to be able to retire on our earnings. And, yeah. you know, there, there's not that kind of protection contingency. And then, you know, you get into, you get into mental health, you get into physical health care. And how can we kind of protect the athletes that we've celebrated for so long and we keep talking about as one or as a family once they're no longer part of, of the game in real time? Yeah, definitely. So if you can be completely honest with yourself and with us right now, in whichever way you want to go, how do you think now that you look back at your career? Insanely fortunate, right place at right time. Um, tried to make the most out of what. I, listen, I knew, and, I, and I'll, I'll use a, a quote from Alexi. Um, I, I knew that guys had more talent in their pinky toe than I had in my whole body. My whole <laughs> That's a little bit harsh, but yeah. <laughs> but my whole thing was work, right? Like I, I just wanted to compete. I wanted to prove. I had this. I always had this desire when I, when I was little, we all have like, kind of, I see your Jordan t-shirt. We all kind of had like our Michael Jordan moment, right? Yeah. Where one club cut us and it was like, well, F you, I'm going to show you. And it was like that, that motivation, that internal drive where, you know, you almost become this unstoppable force. It was nothing was going to stop us from making it. Um, I was very, very, very fortunate to eke out the career I had. Uh, and be so close to the national team and to be at the Olympics and to, to be at the under 20 World Cup and play for 10 years and still get an abroad experience. I, I just look at it as, man, the game's given me so much, even to this day, um, that I, I couldn't be more grateful. Which season do you think was your favorite? Not necessarily the best or whatever, which was your favorite? 
my favorite would have been 2001. Well, the Olympic experience was unbelievable. But in terms of domestic campaigns, the 2001 team in Miami Fusion, where we had guys like Ian Bishop and Jimmy Rooney and Precky and uh, Nicky Romando was on the team. Kyle Beckerman was on the team. Tyrone Marshall, um, Diego Cerna, Chacon, all these guys. It, you know, September 11th, we were supposed to be flying to New York and going to D.C. That team was the team. It was contracted at the end of the season, but I still think I put it up there with some of the best teams in the history of Major League Soccer. Okay. You mentioned Ian Bishop there. I used to ball boy for him when he was at Man City. <laughs> He's the I just talked yeah. last week. I had him How's on our show on Sirius XM. How's he doing? He's good. He's good. He's down He's down in Florida. Uh, still driving his Harley. He's, uh, as <laughs> okay. you know, one of the funniest human beings on the planet. Yeah, 100%. Uh, steps into a lot of gray areas a lot of the time, but I, I had so much fun playing alongside of him and just listening to his banter and uh, probably watching him cross the line in Major League Soccer to the point where <laughs> off the field and on the field really got blurred at some occasions. Okay, that's cool. So, so let's uh, let's move on to the next stage of your life, yeah? And obviously, you've just finished your career. What did you do next? And also, I'd like to know why you chose to do that. So um, we were down in, in L.A., and I was playing for the L.A. Galaxy. My wife now was my fiancé at the time. We had just met at the end of the previous season. Like, I put a ring on it, and, like, I told her the first <laughs> night we were going to get married. And okay. she's like, Either you are you got great game, or you're you're one of those psychopaths. And I was like, okay. ah, let's let's find the equal footing here. <laughs> okay. uh, so I got traded at the end of the season uh, from RSL. Got traded to Chivas. Chivas then traded me to LA. That's just in one off season. Okay. And uh, ended up um, playing for a short amount of time. Sorry, I don't know if you can hear my kids. And how can hear them? It's fine. It's fine. It's, it's a family show. Um, and so we ended up. Uh, coming back to Salt Lake City. I was devastated, devastated. But I knew that weekend, this was like on a Tuesday, that Saturday, RSL was playing somebody. And so I started feeling sorry for myself and I could feel kind of this depression setting in. Like, I don't know who I am without the game. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what's gonna happen. So I just decided to hit it straight on. And RSL was playing at home and I was like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna buy a ticket, I'm gonna sit in the stands and I'm just gonna start the process of like, getting over this whatever this is um and so we ended up going to the game but as i'm driving to the game i hear this pre-game radio show on and it's spencer check-its and it's they're talking about the game and i'm just like you're not talking about this matchup you're not talking about this player you're not talking about this dangerous you know the tactical acumen of what could possibly happen or subs i just started getting frustrated so i get to the game and after the game, I run into Trey Fitzgerald and Spence, and they're walking. And I, my personality is banter, right? Like, I want to, like, have fun and joke around and bust balls. And I said to him off the cuff, I was like, man, listen to the pregame show. Oof. Let me know when you want someone on there that knows what they're talking about. And it was like, but you got under, it sounds such a dick move. But the yeah. context of, like, they're, they were my friends. They were my boys. Like, we've been around each other for a long time. And they were like, you know, really? And I was like, yeah, man, I'm serious. And they're like, well, we don't have any money. And I was like, that's okay, man. I just can't let you go on air and talk about the game like that anymore. Yeah. So that kind of, that like me effing around and like busting balls turned into me doing pre and post game radio uh, for every RSL home game that season in 2006. 
and then the next season being asked to do the analyst role for radio okay. and then and that next season uh becoming the television analyst for real solid and then you work for espn and uh fox sports now as well don't you how did when did that happen so it started so fox it was called fox soccer channel um knew a bunch, knew those broadcasters as a player. And then they always said to me like, Hey, you should jump into this. Like you're comfortable on camera. Um, I think you, you do a pretty good job at this. So it was guys like Christian miles and Max Brados and Alan Hopkins, those guys that were like the old school broadcasters. Uh, and so I just kind of took their advice. I took heed, started, you know, listening to everything they said. And I started working for Fox and started at from being the guy on the sideline, to being the play-by-play guy for Fox, to color analyst, to working for NBC Sports when they had Major League Soccer, uh, to working for ESPN. Uh, never had an agent. It was all kind of my my game calls and my personal relationships. Okay. So one thing, one obvious pathway here, which is not, which hasn't been mentioned and it's been kind of ignored to this point, is why didn't you go down the route of coaching? Uh, very easy answer. I did not want to be responsible. I didn't want after at, when your last paycheck comes and you have a singular income. What I realized very quickly is I never wanted that situation again. Yeah. And going into the coaching realm, there was security, but I wanted to stay in Salt Lake, right? So yeah. I could have become an assistant coach and could have just been one of those guys that life were in the organization. But I didn't. That that always seemed dangerous to me that no matter what you should have the ambition to be a head coach. And I never, I wasn't sure if I ever wanted to be a head coach. Uh, on top of that, the clock starts ticking. So I've had conversations about being a coach. I've had conversations about being general manager with multiple clubs. And all I kept thinking was uprooting my family once I was fired because uh-huh. you can no longer work for an organization. Um, so I, I didn't like the idea of managing 30 or so different personalities that could ultimately completely undo my job security based on their performances. So that's always in my mind, why would I go down that path path when I knew ultimately I could only control one thing and that was my own personal approach and performance to my daily work habits. Yeah, I like your thinking because for me personally, I won't be going into coaching either. I've got no desire to do it whatsoever. So obviously you've done this for a long time now. So what do you actually enjoy the most about your current work as an analyst and things like that? Um, I know this sounds odd. Well, from a personal standpoint, the smell of the grass, <laughs> stadium, yeah, um, you know, the, the, the little bit of banter. Uh, being around the guys, like it, it just gives me that little bit of a of a door or a window that reminds me of everything that I still in my I mean I still dream that I can play, even though I'm super slow when I run in my dream. <laughs> it's like real life, uh, yeah. but there's it it just it gives me something back, right? But to be a broadcaster, I like the ability to like convey to a fan base that might not understand kind of the intricacies of the game or what's happening or the tactics or the approach i like being able to tell kind of the sub stories i like being able to to uh to to paint a picture for a fan base in the beginning of the show to then see play out in real time um and then ultimately i love the interaction i I love being on twitter 
and on Instagram during the game, during a match broadcast, and having the interaction with the fans and bantering and sneaking in words so those at home feel like they're a part of something as opposed to just watching something. Okay, I hear you. Um, You mentioned there the audience, and I'd like to know, do you notice many differences between, say, the Utah audience and more the national audience that you, you ultimately speak to? So what I've realized, you, you have a religious component here in Utah, right? You, you have the Mormon religion. Um, and with the Mormon religion, you have this fascinating aspect that not too many people nationally talk about, is you have missionaries. You have missionaries that, that go away, um, that grow up here in Utah, and have this little bubble of a life, and then all of a sudden are exposed to the game, whether it's in Spain, whether it's in, in Brazil, you know, whether it's around the world, and all of a sudden you come back after two years and you have this like new mid, you know, young, young, uh, late teens, early twenties fan base of men and women that have been exposed to soccer. Whereas they might not have been fans before, but all of a sudden they're kind of like dropped in the middle of, of the, this, this soccer realm. So that's one component of it. And I think throughout the time of Real Salt Lake, there's been an education of watching the fan, uh, watching the game. And what, what I, what I enjoy is kind of from 2006 to now, watching how the fans can get on a referee or feel a momentum switch or start to get behind, um, you know, get behind the team. And it's it's incremental steps that I've seen. Obviously, it's not like Europe. It's not as educated as a fan base, say, with, you know, fans that grew up with their DNA of representing a club in a city. Yeah. Um, but they're starting to come along, and my hope is... The next stage is this kind of unified, conformed um, supporter group. And wherever that looks like, and I know there's been interesting dynamics here in Utah, um, having it more of a feel like we see around the league, uh, whether it's Seattle or Portland or Sporting Kansas City or you know the LAFC, those type of things where you kind of feel it. Uh, but I also think, while I say that, there's things that the club can do to create that culture. And a lot of that now has to do with the safe standing sections, which I think are, are hugely important uh, to be implemented in major league soccer. Yeah, I see that. I totally agree. So now it's part of the most important part. Sorry. It's the most important part of the conversation. Now are you ready for this because you've given, you've, you've shown you, you have two sides. You have you as the player. And now you have you on the other side as the analyst. Yeah. So obviously there's a bit of a blur of the lines in the middle, but, let's get to it you're going to be talking i'm going to ask you very direct questions here okay so i i I require not the pr answer i require honest answers this is going to make or break your entire life but it's no big deal but it's no big deal but it's going to make or break your entire life yeah it's easy it's easy so what do you think the perception amongst the players is of you as an analyst <laughs> ah, see, I've got you. I've got you yeah. straight away. <laughs> no, no, no. This is a great, it's a great question because you, I don't, I don't know if you've recognized this, but I try to show up every week to training. Yeah, I don't know if, that, yeah. you know if you've ever noticed this, but my positioning to where you guys walk in and walk out to training, especially like the day before the games at the stadiums. Yeah, I always make myself available. Yeah, that's so true. what I try, what I've always tried to do is be as honest as I possibly can on a broadcast about the game itself and never ever make things personal mm-hmm. um, because I know what it's like. I have two instances in my head where I can remember distinctly, Derek Ray said, 
Brian Dunn says, having a nightmare, it must be said. And I was like, you bastard, it didn't happen. <laughs> and I wasn't having a nightmare. And uh, Alan Hopkins said, when I got a red card in Olympic qualifying that almost cost us a spot at the Olympics, he said, that's the most unprofessional thing I've ever seen from a soccer player in my life. And so those two moments kind of set the stage for my accountability. I, I would hope that the players would respect the way I call a game, but I also know that in the team dynamic, when you're watching a game back and the coach makes you watch the game and the, and the broadcast is on, that you guys probably look at each other and say, oh, this fucking guy, <laughs> something to that extent. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure, but all I can hope for is the fact that I still get calls up to the nat like national broadcast is that at least someone out there respects the way I call a game. But I would imagine there's a certain amount of banter uh, in that locker room. Do you know what? I'm so glad this is on video. To watch a man dance like that around a question was brilliant. I just That's... swear danced all the way around. <laughs> <laughs> the bigger question still off the back of that is, say this perception from the players, does it matter to you? Uh, I would like, I would like, no, because egotistically, I would like the players to respect the way I call a game. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, the one thing I always, so I'll have parents come up to me. I'll have wives come up to me. I'll have players come up to me and like thank me for something that I said on air, right? Okay. Like, oh, you said something so positive about my son. Like, thank you so much. Or, oh, you know, hey, I really appreciate you brought that up or whatever. I've had that so many times. And you know what I say to them? Please hold that. Because at some point, I'm going to say something that you're going to get pissed off about. I've had text messages for guys to say, dude, why are you talking shit about me? And I'll be like, I literally have not said, I, I didn't even say anything about you. And they're like, oh, my girlfriend told me that you were talking shit about me. And I'm like, uh, why don't you do me a favor? Why don't you go back and watch the broadcast? And if I cross the line, give me a call. So I, I, that's how I try to make myself available. Yeah, okay. Again, not as much dancing that time, but but it was it was a good answer. I know you know the. I don't even think I want to know like how how the guys view me. Yeah, but I do know what I would say is over the past couple of years, I'll bring up one person, Joao Plata. Yeah, Plata, at like there was a time where Plata would go out of his way to come up and say hello to me, and yeah. then the moment that move broke down to Mexico last year, Plata went out of his way to ignore me every single time because I guess in his mind, I must have crossed the line and made it personal. Okay. So it, what I've noticed as a broadcaster is, and tell me if I'm wrong, because I'll put you back in, inside of that, that, that whatever locker room, theater, whatever. There's guys that are super sensitive, yeah. super sensitive about social media. And there's established veterans that are super sensitive. And there are young guys that are super sensitive. And what I realized is if, somebody's had a bad game or if I've called out a mistake or if I pointed out a mistake, those that are sensitive, when I make myself available at, you know, the pregame, when you guys are walking to the locker room and I'm standing outside ready to do the interviews, or you guys are coming off the field after practice, those guys will go out of their way to ignore me. Completely <laughs> ignore me. Like, look the opposite way. Like guys will come up and be like, yo, what's up, dude? How are you Dunny? Whatever. And these guys go and just walk by yeah, I see, I see that. I see that. I think maybe some of that is just because it's a lot of people are just younger. And obviously the game is one where you're being judged every time you step on the field anyway. But when it feels like it's coming from someone who 
Actually, no, I'm, I'm not going to say too much. I'm going to I'm going to switch that up. So you you as a player, um, how do you think do you think you would have gotten along with someone that's like you in the way that you announce games? So I, I got to so there was something that happened, and this is why I learned very quickly um, why broadcasters and media members were important. Uh, 1997, just get to New England. It's like July. It's like July 10th, somewhere around there. U.S. still hadn't qualified for the World Cup. And we were about to play a game at the old Foxborough Stadium for the Revolution. And I was starting in next to Alexi Lawless. So I was left-sided center back. He's right-sided center back. And Alexi's, like, walking out. I'm like, yo, Lex, where are you going? He's like, oh, I got to go do this interview for ESPN. I was like, can I watch? Because my whole thing as a young player, I always wanted to be around the older players. I wanted to, like, just suck all the information I could get out of them. So Lex is like, yeah, man, sure. So I went down. I'm watching Alexi. I'm watching him with the fans. I'm watching him with the staff. I'm watching him with the media members. And he goes up and he takes his, he, he walks up and he's just like, Alexi Lawless, Alexi Lawless, nice to meet you. And he literally like greets everybody. So he's like breaking the ice. So then question, what are we talking about? Oh, we're going to talk about the World Cup qualifying here in two weeks time for the U.S. at Foxborough Stadium. Great. Takes his head off, hair, his hat off, pulls his hair down, long fucking flowing red locks, pulls his beard out, sits there sits down he's already asked what the question is and he goes like this boom and all of a sudden like he's on and alexi's like the quietest dude ever until he's on camera and when he's on camera he's like perspective like uh, here's the story and so they ask him and alexi goes on this rant i'm so excited here home fans new england revolution at foxborough stadium i'm representing the united states who would ever thought this hockey kid from detroit gonna be playing for the world cup i know the power of the world cup the fact that we can qualify for France here inside this stadium in front of my fans for the revolution, it's going to be incredible. And it's just personality, personality, personality. Yeah. And so I'm like, holy shit. Like, Alexi the human is like this very quiet person. Alexi the personality is like boisterous, rambunctious. I mean, just you want to be his friend. And I was like, okay. So I literally was standing next to the guy and I said, like one of the local guys, the Fox guys, and I said, that's incredible. And he goes, that's just practice. And I, and I go, I want to do that. And he goes, oh, I'll teach you. And I realized at that moment, and I was doing the media training for years for Major League Soccer for all the incoming players. That moment I realized whether it was a beat reporter, whether it was a blogger, whether it was a camera guy, or whether it was a national media member and sitting down in the studio, I could control a message and I could present to uh, a fan base that I was someone that like, maybe you want to grab a beer with, maybe you want to hang out with, but I'm here to play for your club and I want to be a part of that. And so what I realized when you, you know, sorry, long story short, when you asked me that question, I would walk into a stadium every single day, training, shake everyone's hand, either on the way in or way out. Just as like, hey, how are you? How's the golf game? How's the family? How are you doing? What you been up to? And it wasn't that I necessarily cared about that person, but I was creating an environment to where if I was playing horribly, I would give the benefit of the doubt to that person because they were there was a relationship. Yeah. And I think that's what I've always tried to create is a relationship with the media members. You know, you keep answering questions in a way which leads me to another topic, but I still have another question to answer. But this is a good, this is, I think this is a good spot to lead to this. So 
Do you think it's possible then to be unbiased as an analyst? Because I've heard people say that you're overly critical at times. For me, like I, I'm, I don't really care. Like it is what it is. I, the game is what it is, and everyone has opinions. I've accepted that from a long time ago. But I wonder if people think you're overly critical, and I wonder if this is the case for you. Because ultimately, your role is to try and avoid showing bias. So, do you think you can actually be unbiased whilst also trying not to show bias? So I get accused of this every time I do a national broadcast that Real Salt Lake is involved because of my history, the longevity of my history with Real Salt Lake. And I would, I would be naive to not assume that because of my relationship with the players and the club that I wouldn't at some point either protect them or give them the benefit of the doubt. But one of the things, I'm a constantly accused of being overly critical, but I actually... I actually don't think I'm critical. I actually think I call a game. I try to call a game the same way I would for ESPN or for Fox. Like if I'm doing a national a national game. If yeah. I'm calling a Champions League game or I'm calling a U.S. Open Cup game, I try to call it right down the middle. And I think that's why, because I'm not a homer, that's why RSL fans think that I'm overly critical towards – like I should be more home-sided. Yeah, I get a lot of that's where I get most of my stick. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's true. Really critical. To be honest, I don't really watch my games back. So I I don't know. I don't know what you're saying. You could be talking (laughs) the most nonsense. But yeah, (laughs) no, I think I think it's a tough role. And the reason I asked the question was because, as I say, I think it's human nature sometimes that if people are criticizing you for being overly positive about something, then you almost have to consciously make an effort to not be overly positive about something. Yeah. But not everything that we see is positive. So things which maybe are neutral or negative, maybe then pulls us further back again to make something that's neutral be maybe a bit more negative than say it should be. But that's, it's a, it's a tough thing. Like I, I wouldn't, I don't like calling games because it's, it's just one of those things. Like I try and be factual, but at some point if I know somebody or I know something, then like if someone's had a free kick and they've just missed, but I know that they should have scored it, I might say they should have scored it. But the thing is, if I don't know the player that's taken the free kick, then I wouldn't say they should have scored it. I just think, oh, that was close. You know, there's lots of little cues and things like that within your mind. Um, so maybe like this doesn't matter, but I think um, for players, one of the reasons why I think they can get so upset sometimes, especially because when they're younger is, as you said yourself, you can control, um, you, you see, you can control a message, like you say. And that message, which I've seen across the years, it could be, for the audience, it could be positive, it could be negative, it, it could be whatever. And I think as players, you can get upset because those messages which you create are basically things which can greatly affect people's career. Like, do you, I don't know you probably feel it because you have been a player and you've had people announce things for you. But in our, in our times playing the game, um, the, the audience respects you because you have done more than they've done within the game. And players know that you've been within the game. So sometimes when they feel like you're being overly critical, they take it in a more harsh way because you've played the game. And the most complaints I'll ever see, I've ever seen, not just while I'm here, but in general, is when somebody will say, it's like he's not played before, he's forgotten what it's like to be a player. Yeah, you yeah. know, that's, that's, that's a bit, I'm trying to lead to a question, but there's no question to it to really answer it. We're just having no, to talk no, about no. it now. No, I, I, you're, you're right. I get what you're saying because, I mean, the easy answer, right, is, ah, what the fuck does he know? 
right? Uh, yeah. What does he know? Like, oh, he's played the game, but was he really that good anyways? Like, uh, this guy's acting like he played in the World Cup, like he never made a mistake. Trust me, I, I, I am completely cognizant of that every time a microphone is in front of my face and I'm talking about a game. And that's why I just try to be real. Like, yeah. uh, instead of saying, like, he can't, like, I'm not trying to be Graham Simmons, right? I'm not trying to make everything <laughs> a very personal situation. I'm, I'm trying to make it so the game itself, people as they're watching, they say, could it have been better? Yeah. Did he mean to do, like, did he mean to miss that? Absolutely not. Was it a big opportunity missed that could have huge ramifications on the game? 100%. Yeah. But for me, there's only one thing that really chaps my ass about calling a game and watching players is when a player doesn't care. Yeah. And when a player, like you can have a bad game. I'm totally fine having a bad game. But if there's a, if there's a lack of effort, if there's a lack of commitment, and it's a, it's a visual body marker where you're just, you're jogging, like you're Mesut Ozil-ing, defending, yeah. all of, like that's when I lose, like that's where I, I start to tread into making it personal. Because I, I just think, for me, DNA-wise, it's unforgivable to not make a hundred percent effort. Yeah. And I think that's the only time where I start to delve into, did I make it personal? Did I have to go? And there's only one guy in the, I can only think of one guy and it's that, that, that guy, Tommy Smith from Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. I made it really personal that day because when you guys dropped six on Colorado, he yeah. just wasn't even trying at that point. Yeah. But you, you've created another talking point here because you're talking about something which has happened, but does that mean that you can never escape that moment? If you've been accused of something once before, does that mean that's going to be you forever now? Well, that that part is because it was all over social media, and Tyler Gibbons cut the audio to go with the highlight package. So yeah, every time there's a Colorado Rapid Rocky Mountain Cup game, I know that Tommy Smith, Tommy Smith, I know yeah. that. <laughs> which which ultimately, like as I say, as a player, that's such a big thing because I've seen myself across the years. When a game begins, a time when I was a lot younger, I used to care about ratings uh, in terms of how people would give you a number out of 10 or whatever. And I know there were certain people who in the minds of an announcer or an analyst would always start at a seven. If they had a bad game, it drops to a six. If they did anything significant, it goes up to an eight. But then there are other people who started at five. And if they had a good game, they'll get given a six. If they make a mistake, they get given a four. And I always just think like, how are we, are, we, are they watching the same game? Are we on the same field doing the same thing? You know, and that for a while could be very, very hard to take. But thankfully, as I've gotten older, you know, paper media is like done now. So I don't even check that stuff anymore. I'm just stress-free. <laughs> but you know what it's like. I mean, you're, you're, you're bang on. I mean, I think about how, how, do, how do players earn their labels? You know, a lot of times the labels that are placed on players are uh, decisions that they made off the field. That has yeah. then followed them onto the field. Um, now with social media, it's a completely different animal. Uh, I yeah. couldn't imagine checking my my phone after a game. We <laughs> wait yeah. hours to eat. Yeah, it's toxic. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, I just think about the play, and it's almost like the momentum of a conversation about a player's statistics or a player's consistency all of a sudden puts them into an elite category or drops them into super average, like. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, that I, I think that happens across the board in every league. Okay. Right. So let me lighten the mood a little bit because it's been very, very serious for the last half hour. We've, you know, you and I are both men of media, just going having a back and forth, you know. <laughs> so uh, a little birdie told me that you're a big music man. Is this true? 
I, I, I do everything in my life to music, yeah. Uh, but just to be clear, I'm not one of those guys that can rattle off, like, names, places, times, but when there's songs, I can literally hear songs or see, like, a cassette player or, like, a, a CD player, and I could tell you the first song or album or kind of feeling that comes to mind. So, yeah, everything in my life is a reference point with music. Um, and what type of music are you into? Uh, for me, it's always been kind of like 90s hip-hop. I mean, my to, to, I'll, I'll tell you, my first two cassettes were G The Best of Jimi Hendrix yes. uh, and Beastie Boys. Those were like my first two cassettes that I could ever purchase uh, on my own down at like a, was it like a block? No, it wasn't a blockbuster. What was that name of that? Anyways. Yeah. So you say, you say 90s hip-hop, but then you proceeded to talk about Jimi Hendrix and obviously Beastie Boys falls within that, but... What else, who, which other artists are you really listening to and pushing at this point now? So it's funny. I, I, I wrote down a list. I had to put, because when I was talking to Ryan, I was like, 90s hip hop, I got to put a list. Is there a list together of like songs or is there a list of, of, of records, of albums? Um, so for me, here, here I put, here's my list. You ready? I, I probably have eight songs. Okay. Uh, let's start with, you got to do Juicy with B.I.G., right? It's a classic, yeah. Classic. Yeah. Uh, for me being a West Coast kid. Uh -huh. Anything with like Ice Cube, Snoop, Cypress Hill, Dre, Tupac, Warren G, that's all kind of like in my realm. Uh, but East Coast, Two. I mean, Ghetto Boys, Outkast, yeah. Busta Rhymes, uh, who else am I missing? Oh, Trap Call Quest. Yeah, like, yeah. That, like that That right there is my is my little bubble of like, you put that music on, I'm a happy, I'm a happy man. It's timeless music, great music. Could argue it's the best time of best time for music and hip hop music in particular. Um, when you were a player, was what was the culture like back then in terms of listening to music? Because obviously now it's a huge part of it. But what was it like when you were playing? So you know, the locker room, you'd have the designated DJ. Uh, usually they sucked. Uh, <laughs> well, that's the less. Hold on, let me shoot some bail here. That's because you have to try and find music that caters to everybody. That's the biggest problem. So you see, so it's like you dilute your own preferences. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, well, so, so. And, and I feel like here now in the U.S., you have such, such a cultured locker room that you have like, like, like Plata and all the boys would be like carrying his little Beats by Dre and, and yeah. whatever music he was bumping to that weekend. Or you'd have like the hip hop crew or like you have the heavy metal crew or you have like the reggae crew. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was all, it was all like I had two phases. I had 90s hip hop or I had like, like aggressive, like music that I was thinking of. And it was for me, it was like Rage Against the Machine. Yes. If I wanted to get going, if I was like driving to the stadium, like, okay, I'm listening to Rage. If I'm on my way home, I'm probably, or going to training, I'm probably like 90s hip hop. Okay. That's very, very interesting. You're saying a lot of things which, and naming a lot of artists, which I listen to as well. And even though we are um, a bit different in age. Wait, I'm old man? Wow. <laughs> Well, if I'm calling myself old, then what does that make you? I'm 43. Yeah, yeah exactly. I still think I'm 24, but whatever. Wow, you know. So just before we get into some fun, I'll give you some trivia, actually, because, again, we're linked in another way. I'd be interested to, see, to know, to see if you actually know the answer to this. So did you know there was one player which we were both on a roster with? Can you name that player? Probably Nicky Romano. No, no, no. I'm talking about outside of that. Oh. Outside of it, because he's he's the obvious one, but there's someone else. So we talking about current or 
No, 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 no. Just a player that has played in your in our lifetimes who you've played with and I've also played with were uniting generations. Huh. Me and all the other cool millennials and you and whatever we'll call you. I don't know. Who would it be? I'm thinking about your career. I'm thinking about who would play <laughs> well, your career. I've played with quite a few, but there's there's one guy in particular. There's one he's, he's a very, very famous face on these shores. Very famous. Very famous. Very famous, yeah. Very famous. You're killing me. I don't know. Would you, would you like a clue? Yeah. So, did you go to the Gold Cup in 98? I mean, I didn't make the roster. Oh, you didn't make the roster? No. But were you, did you train with the team or anything? You know, I was, I was at the Gold Cup. Yeah, I was at the Gold Cup. Okay, so, so I was right. Sorry, you were wrong about your own career. So, but yeah. I, I, forgot, I totally forgot I was at the Gold Cup. Uh, my roommate was Brian McBride. Uh, Played against him. So, think about that generation. Oh, uh, yeah. So, let's see. McBride, so, uh, Harksy was back. Ronaldo, you wouldn't have played. No. That generation. That generation. Not Frankie. Not who would be on that team? It's my first two years of my career I spent playing with this human being. So Marcus? Was he, I don't think he was on the he didn't make the roster. He didn't make that roster. No. Claudio. Claudio Reyna. There you go. Claudio Reyna. There's the link between the two of us. That's amazing. Among, yeah, for sure. For real. What, what a great guy. Yeah, exactly. Right, we're going to have some reflection, okay? See if you can answer these questions in an unbiased way, because I know that's quite hard for you. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> so from your time playing, who was the best um, player that you've played with and the best that you played against? Mm. Played against would be Jaime Moreno, DC United okay. back in the day. Uh came over, where was he, uh, Middlesbrough, played for DC. I still think to this day, he had everything, speed, athleticism, strength, technical ability, right foot, left foot, could dribble you, turn you inside out. Um, in terms of like the most difficult opponents, I, I had him up there in MLS. Yeah. Uh, internationally, it would be uh, Bam Bam Zamorano. This guy. Yeah, oh, the guy, was, obviously yeah, he's got a shirt in the background, plug, plug, plug. Told you you couldn't be unbiased. That was that was the only other one. Um, but but played with now. Best player I played with. Uh, it would go back to when I was 16 years old, and unfortunately his career was blighted by injury. But it was Johnny O'Brien. Played okay. for X. Played for the U.S. Men's National Team. Um, if he hadn't gotten hurt, I still think to this day he would be one of the iconic names in U.S. soccer history. Had he okay. not dealt with so many injuries in the second phase of his career. Right. Now that you're an, an analyst, or in the fairness, let's, let's spread this across the 25 years or however long it is. Who would you most have liked to play with? Now, you can't say the same names because I know you've got a thing for Jaime Moreno, but you got to try and get someone else now. Um, played with. Who would I have liked to play with? God, that's it, a, it can be from the 90s to early 2000s or just, you know, last It's, a, it's across months. the board? Anything, anything at all. So basically, whatever you've played and seen, whatever you've just seen, and you think that would probably be something which you'd want to be a part of. So there's, there's, two, there's two defenders that I would have loved to. For me, it was Alessandro Nesta 
and it was yeah. Fabio Cannavaro, those two. But I, but I kind of wanted, I, I'm going to throw this out there just for shithousery. I, I kind of wish I would have played alongside like Pepe or Sergio Ramos, just so I could see what it was like to be just a bastard for nine minutes. <laughs> I feel like the, the, uh, the mental games, terrific. the physical games with those two in that partnership would just be so much fun to experience. Yeah, I, I can see that. You've basically summed up who you are. You didn't say, oh, I want to be PK playing in Barcelona with all these tiki taka. I just want to be, a, I just want the person who's had the most red cards in the history of all of world football. But scored goals wanna... and still hits a 60 yard dime like nobody does. In the yeah, game. this is true. This is true. <laughs> so for now, all the players that you've seen. Um, again, who would you least like to play against? Go on. I, I know, I know, you know, it's coming, but I got an affinity for Zlatan. Uh, <laughs> I, I know, I know there's a personal, there's a personal thing. There. No, listen, I'm fine. I've had plenty of those incidents throughout my career. Like I'm, I'm all for it. Like bring it on. I just, I think what the, the, I just think what's, what would be incredible about that is just watching a guy fabricate a battle for no reason and try like I've been around guys and you know this you've been around guys where they like make stuff up right yeah like I feel like Luis Suarez Diego Costa Zlatan Ibrahimovic they're kind yeah. of of the same ilk is that you, there's no problem there and all of a sudden like you touch them and it's like oh, I'm gonna break you or like <laughs> I, uh, you're my mortal enemy like yeah what'd you do to my mom like you know like it's one of those <laughs> moments where i just look at zlatan and just like his size yeah, i think it's incredible to have like that opportunity to try to like figure him out yeah. because i've been a you know we here in mls we had guys like carlos hermosillo we had guys like otanke Hurtado, guys that were like six five and just huge and strong um and had a little bit of pace and i just thought that it would be a, it would be fun to like see what that physical matchup was like with a guy like Zlatan. So for me, I always used to, not always used to, I still do. I, pref I prefer the games against the best players because it makes you play in a way which maybe you won't play normally. Like, don't get me wrong, every player we come up against is a good player. But the ones who have something special, like how do you play against a guy who's six foot five and scored 500 goals already? You know, you have to be alert the whole time. So it switches your brain on, switches on everything about you. Like you, you have to be more physical. You have to read the game better. You have to make better decisions. And I, you know, I, I, I love those games. I live for those games. Are, um, are, you, are you like this too? Do you, do you like the more physical matchups as opposed to the darty guys that kind of play off the shoulder and underneath? It, it just depends to be honest. It just depends. Like I, as long as someone, if someone's a really good player, I'm always looking forward to it because it's a matchup where I want to test myself. You know, yeah. I, like I, I, I know and I believe how good I am as a player and whether or not someone says that I am or I'm not, I always judge myself based against those people, the best players who I play against. Yeah. And there aren't many games in my career where I've come up against someone and I said, tell you what, he's, they've got too much because I've been able to adapt my strengths towards trying to stop them because, you know, as a defender, if a defender and attacker both have a game which is essentially 10 out of 10, the defender still loses the game because the attacker can just put one into the top corner from 40 yards out or something. Yeah. But, you do everything you can to make it as hard for them as possible to achieve their goals. Yeah. And, you know, as I say, the, those type of battles, like whether it's physical, whether it's intelligent, like the ones, the players who live on your shoulder who you never see, you know, you can't look at him and look at the ball at the same time. Those ones, they keep you on your toes because then you have to organize the team around you. But then the physical one-on-one -on -one battles as well, like 
I love those. And most of the people I play against, when the game's done, you're high-fiving each other. And it's like, oh, that was a good battle. Look forward to doing it again, you know? Except for the ones that walk in the locker room after the game. Well, <laughs> sometimes you got to tell them to leave politely. Hey, sometimes. by the way, by the way I, 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 I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. I know it's your show. But how long was the adaption period for you? Because, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're at Man City or at Sunderland, you're at QPR, there, there's a certain characteristic, and I know there's still variables, but, like, the way the strikers play, the way the forwards play, there's... There's a certain physical trait or element. Has, has it been different here in Major League Soccer? Yeah, very different because there's not as much emphasis on physicality when it comes down to the front line. Like there's certain players who are strong and certain players who have speed and they have that physical side of it. But ultimately, every team wants to try and get the ball down and play, in quotation marks, the right way. So there's not as much direct pressure that will come. There's some games, like I'll never forget to the, till the day like I die. I played a game once against Millwall, who were known for being like a big physical aggressive team. And for 20 minutes, we didn't leave our half, not because they get to play nice football, but every time we won the ball, they pressed us. And then when they got it back, they spun it into the corner and had someone come and chase you and wrestle you for the whole time. Yeah. And like that there, it doesn't, it feels like it's anti-football, but then also it's effective which is ultimately what it comes down to this game. Whatever is effective for you, whether it looks nice or it doesn't, if it gets you success, that's what you roll with. Yeah. But here, every team wants to play, whether you're LAFC at the top or say like last year, you were Cincinnati at the bottom. There's a vast difference between the quality of the two sides. But Cincinnati, when you go and play them, they'll still try and play. Yeah. But yeah some of those games, when you, there was a spell, I think uh, three years ago in my career, where for three weeks, from corners, I was marking people who were at least six foot four, and it went from six four to six seven. But that's just how it is, and you just have to try and learn and adapt to it. And over here in the MLS, it's very different. Set pieces don't feel like it's as big a deal. The strikers tend to be smaller and more work around tens and stuff. And you don't really come up against two nines. It's always a nine and a, and a ten. Yeah. But you get into Europe, and it's just like two huge nines that just want to come and try and barge you around. And you know, ultimately, it is what it is. Yeah, literally, you take one to the face. If you don't break anything, you just carry on. Yeah. So, so my final question for you, um, this is going to be, ah, should I, would you, would you like me to narrow it down so it's easier? But I'm trying to get you to name an all-staff, your ultimate MLS five-a-side team. But do you want to do it for the generation you played in or do you want to do it for everything that you've seen? Uh, well, the, everything I've seen, there, there'd be a huge kind of like foreign component because of the growth, I think, in the last... 10 years of MLS. Yeah, let's go OG. You, you mind okay. going? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, go for it. Let's see, five. So my goalkeeper, uh, who would I go with my goalkeeper? That's going to be, I'd go Tony Miola. Yeah. I, I, even though he's my co-host on our show on Counter-Attack, I'm serious. There's no, there's no bias on this show, nothing at all, no. Well, at the time, he was the best goalkeeper, I think, in that <laughs> early phase. MLS MVP, all that stuff. Um, I got to go with Valderrama. Valderrama's got to be in there somewhere because El Pibe had like 25 assists every single year. I felt like he was playing in the league. Um, got to go my goal scorer. I'll go Jaime Moreno. Yeah. Goal scorer. Let's see. So I got, tell me more. I got two more. My mess. You got two more. Got two more. Yeah. Two more. Two more. Two more. Two more. Who would I go with? Going to go with. Kyle, I'll, I'll bring it home, and I'm not trying yeah. to be honest, but I, but I yeah. think a guy who was like a, a off the shoulder striker as a under 17 national team player that ended up starting in a World Cup is virtually the only MLS player 
as a defensive yeah. midfielder in a six. Yeah. Let's see. Need one more. This is mm. tough, man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Who should I pick as my final? Who did I retire? Uh, I need one more midfielder, right? You can do it however you want to do it. If you want to be attacking, be attacking. If you want to be negative, be negative. It's fine. I'm going to go with Marco Echeverry. So I'm going to do yeah. like two tens. Okay. Got two tens. Kyle Overtech. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. Miola, Kyle protects Valderrama, Echeverry underneath Jaime Moreno. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, that's not too bad. So thank anyway, so that's it now. So I want to say thank you very much for coming on the show. Appreciate it, my and, man. And, and hopefully we'll see you at the stadium soon because it means that we're actually ha having a season. Yes. So, yeah, yeah I, I appreciate we, it, my man. Good stuff as always. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for coming on. Hopefully see you soon, but stay safe till then. Sounds good, man. Right, take it easy, man. Thank you. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed our conversation. I think it was quite honest and featured certain things which maybe you haven't heard people talk about before. If that is the case, make sure to uh, reach out on social media. You can find us at kickback underscore Nadem on Instagram and on Twitter. So a huge thanks again to Brian. And also, I need to give thanks to the producer extraordinaire, Mr. Ryan Hale. Thank you to Mountain Air Studios, Draper, Utah. And last but not least, all the listeners out there. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell a friend and remember to follow us at kickback underscore Nadem on Instagram and Twitter. There you will also find the links to the kickback playlist. So yeah, enjoy. And for now, you take care.